Our text for this morning is John chapter 19, verses 16 through 42. If you're using one of the blue Bibles from a chair near you, you're going to find our text beginning on page 905. Again, if you're using the blue Bible from a chair near you, you'll find our text beginning on page 905. Last week, the trial. This week, the execution. So let's turn our attention to the scriptures together, beginning in verse 16. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus, and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him. And with him two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the King of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am the King of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture which says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for this, this, that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken, that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, that you also may believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. 
After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, beloved Church of God, see the love of our Lord for his people in the death of his Son in your place. There is no darker day or darker moment in human history than the account we just read. Dates mark moments of significance. November 11th, 1918, Armistice Day, marking the end of World War I. December 7th, 1941, Pearl Harbor is attacked. June 6th, 1944, the D-Day invasion. May 8th, 1945, victory in Europe Day, marking the defeat of the Nazi war machine. September 11th, 2001, when many of us watched planes fly into the World Trade Center towers. These dates are frozen into our collective consciousness because of the significant impact they had both on our country and the world. And this is only a selection of some important dates from roughly the last 100 years. And these days, marked often year after year with varying degrees of celebration and circumstance, are but a drop in the bucket of the eternal significance of what we just read together. There is no day more meaningful in all of history of humanity than the day Jesus died, except maybe when he conquered death walking out of the tomb. It feels too small to spend the next 40-ish minutes discussing so monumental a day. Yet it isn't just this day or just this sermon, is it? No, brothers and sisters in Christ, the substitutionary death of the Lord Jesus in our place is what we remember every Lord's Day together. We think weekly upon the bloody cross of Jesus when we gather week after week to commemorate his death and resurrection. And we will rejoice in the resurrection next week, but today we will stare at the cross and may our hearts be broken over our own sin and guilt, even as we see the spotless Lamb of God crucified and cursed on a tree, taking our death upon himself, bearing our cure in his body and our curse in his body. As he delivers the final blow to our guilt and shame, as he willingly takes upon himself the punishment that we deserve for each and every sin, let us, with solemn joy, see what Paul summarizes in 2 Corinthians 5.21. 
for our sake. He made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So as far as how we're going to do this, we're going to do what we did last week. We're going to walk through this passage together in hopes that through the work of the Holy Spirit, we might have our minds illuminated and awakened, our hearts humbled and warmed, and our hands be made ready to labor for the sake of the one who died to give us life. So we begin with John stating of Pilate, so he delivered him over to them to be crucified. So if you remember last week, Pilate's capitulation is growing to the crowd as he continues to do what they've done to back him into a corner. And his capitulation now to the crowd is complete and he tries to symbolically wash his hands of the deed. But he can no more wash the blood from his hands than anyone present at the moment of Jesus' conviction. Nor any of us. And we are told in the manner of two sentences, the slaying of the Son of God. So they took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him. And with him two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. Now, as with last week, I'm not going to indulge in some twisted form of gory detail about the cross. That would only serve to satisfy some weird human bloodlust that many of us have. Yet there are realities about crucifixion that we actually need to understand. We need to grasp what being crucified meant. So to be crucified ultimately was to be made an example of. Crucifixion was reserved for capital crimes. Those crimes against the emperor or the power of Rome were the crimes that would warrant this type of death. And it developed from its inception to its proficiency in its brutality. By the time of Jesus, Romans were very good at crucifixion. And crucifixion was commonplace. Now consider that for a moment. Just consider this. It was commonplace in Roman territories conquered by Rome to see this type of punishment. In some instances, it was recorded that people were crucified on the main roads into and out of a city so that anyone coming in would be met with the horrors of the sights and sounds and smells of people dying or already dead. Crucified people died slowly and horribly. And it was by design. Arms stretched out and nailed to a cross beam, legs pinned to a vertical beam or nailed to the cross as well. But the way in which people were fastened to the cross with nails wasn't actually the terminal injury. They were crucified in a way that made it hard to breathe so that the person would have to pull on the nails in their wrists, push with their feet against the nail in order to lift themselves up to breathe. This detail is important because it 
comes to play later in our story. The way of death was not merely blood loss, but asphyxiation. You would basically run out of strength to lift yourself up to breathe, so you would slowly die as your body ceased to have oxygen. It could take days. Another benefit for Rome is you became a very gruesome advertisement for how we punish criminals. Crucified people were billboards. This is what happens to those who oppose Rome. You see, Rome employed this method of execution in order to send a clear message to the people. Oppose Rome. This is the outcome. Now, I want us to try as best we can, and this is going to be insufficient at best, to try for a moment to think about life in that world. People daily moving in and out of cities and marketplaces with their children. You know, we're often really careful to shelter our kids from the things that they see, to kind of protect them from the wickedness of the world. We don't want them to see disturbing or heartbreaking things. But there was no safe harbor from crucifixion in Jesus' day. And we have no active concept of what this was truly like. And my reason for even describing what I've given you here is not to be gruesome, but in hopes that you might in some small way be able to understand the horror of what was done, not only to Jesus, but to many, and to fix in your minds the terrible picture regarding your sin and guilt before God in the crucified Son, Jesus. For he took upon himself that which you and I deserve. So it was customary for those who were executed to have their charge posted. They would have a sign put around their neck or fastened above them on their cross. And Pilate does what is routine for him, but actually serves as a pronouncement for all time. Look again at verses 19 through 22. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but rather write, but rather this man said, I am king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. Now this exchange to us, maybe on face value, does not strike us with significance. Pilate is doing what he normally would do. But his wording is specifically chosen to insult the Jewish leaders who have pushed him into this situation with their plotting. He's retaliating and insulting them by wording the charge the way he does. And the false charge that is ultimately laid against Jesus, as we saw last week, is treason and sedition, acting against the Roman Empire and emperor. The chief priests take exception to the wording, one, because they don't believe Jesus to be their king. And two, they wanted the charge to look like it rose from Jesus' own declaration, which would help preserve their image and their power over the people. But as one scholar writes about Pilate's insistence not to change his sign, he says, Pilate's firmness is not motivated by principle and strength of character, but by the hurt obstinacy and bitter rage of a man who feels set upon. 
But church, the sign written in three languages served as a billboard to Jesus' true identity because it was true. It was actually true. Jesus is the king of the Jews. Furthermore, he's the king of the Gentiles as well. You could say Pilate didn't go far enough. He could have written king of the universe if he had a concept of the universe. And it would still have been true. And this humiliating execution of the king of the Jews is the exact way Jesus said he would be glorified. As Jesus has said throughout his, this gospel, as we've seen John recording it, the Father would glorify the Son, and the hints of Jesus' glorification through suffering are actually displayed here in the sign on his cross. I mean, this is the right-side-up reality of the gospel that confronts the upside-down reality of our hearts. Our king did not come conquering as a militant political military leader. He came as a humble and lowly servant to others and ultimately died for his enemies. What other king dies for the rebels to his throne? The world sees a poor, destitute man, humiliated, mocked and scorned, brutally beaten and dying, seemingly failing in everything that he said. But friends, that's what their eyes saw. But what was actually happening was the conquering king was slaying our sin, shame, and penalty as our mighty king on the cross. When he dies in our place, the world screams failure. Heaven shouts victory. John showed us Caiaphas, right? Caiaphas, the unwitting chief priest who prophesied truly that Jesus would die on behalf of his people. And now he shows Pilate becoming a prophet to the nations, proclaiming in three languages, Hail, the King of the Jews. And this king, our king, is the crucified king. The soldiers stripped Jesus and crucify him. And we noted already crucifixion was no quick death. Crucified people died slowly. And once a person was crucified, they became a spectacle of suffering for all to see. And the, the soldiers who are crucifying Jesus only desire to increase the shame. By taking the clothes from his body and dividing them up between themselves, and taking his undergarment and playing a game of chance, gambling for his clothes. I mean, these are people. Sad excuses for humans. But this is where humanity tends towards. This moment reveals the utter callousness of the Roman guards. This criminal won't need his clothes anymore. So let's take him. Let's tear the ones up that we can tear, and we'll play a game for this kind of nice one. Let's gamble for this dying man's clothing while he's gasping naked and ashamed. Or ashamed, excuse me. But John continues his faithful work for us, showing us that the soldiers who assumed what was likely a common practice to steal the clothes off of a criminal's back actually fulfilled the scriptures with their wicked deeds. 
John actually cites a portion of Psalm 22 they fulfill. This was to fulfill the scripture which says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. John, as he recounts the death of Jesus, is giving even greater insight into the scriptures that told us of what the Messiah would endure. This is so foundational to John's gospel. You see, John has revealed Jesus, our Messiah, as he accomplishes and fulfills the promises of the Old Testament. And John is drawing our attention to details that we might be just prone to overlook. Like the actions of the soldiers is actually a faith-building exercise for John. He's like, see, they're doing what we were told would happen. If you aren't a Christian, John wants you to believe Jesus and to be saved by him. But he doesn't call you just to buy a bill of goods that he's selling. No, John is proving the reality of Jesus, both as an eyewitness to Jesus' life and through the showing the many ways in which Jesus accomplished what had been written in the scriptures. He doesn't ask us to stop using our brains or to not be reasonable people. No, John, through these moments, is pointing us to Jesus' fulfillment of the Old Testament, and he is actually giving us solid proof for our faith in Jesus. Some people outside of Christianity can wrongly assume of us that Christianity is a religion of blind faith. Christianity is a religion of faith, but our faith is not blind at all. We see the facts and reality of the person and the work of Jesus and believe that he is who he claimed to be. And if you are a Christian, it is a treasure to have God-inspired proof for your trust in Jesus. As John shows you the ways that Jesus accomplished the word of God, your faith is strengthened and it grows as you lean on the living word. And we've seen, as we've, as we've moved through these final chapters and as we continue to move through the final chapters of John's gospel, he is increasingly showing us sharp contrasts, almost jarring if we have eyes to see them. He moves from the hard-hearted gambling executioners to the family of the executed. And this was part of the story that actually hit me afresh this week. Look at verses 25 through 27. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his home. Friends, they were standing by the cross. I mean, that little detail holds a canyon of emotion. Who of us could endure such a devastating sight? Your child, innocent and being slowly murdered before your eyes. You, watching the suffering and agony of the one whom you raised. I mean, it flattens me to think about the immense suffering Mary was enduring as she saw her sweet little boy 
humiliated, tortured, and mocked, hung on a cross to endure the hatred of a crowd. I mean, the thought is almost too much to bear. And our Lord Jesus, enduring agony beyond our ability to grasp, looks at his mom and at his beloved disciple and friend and cares for them from the cross. He's dying for them. And he cares for them. We see the fulfillment of the words of Simeon from Luke chapter 2 taking place right in front of us. And Simeon blessed them and said to his Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your soul also. So that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Jesus was opposed and Mary's own soul is pierced as she watches her son bleed and die for her. And Jesus speaks to his mother. Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. What is Jesus doing here? Well, if Jesus was the primary source of care for his mother, which this text seems to indicate, he is ensuring her provision. Remember, his brothers from John chapter 7 didn't believe him. They mocked him. He's entrusting her to his beloved disciple, whom we know from previous texts that is John, the writer of this gospel account. Which is why he can add after Jesus' words, and from that hour the disciple took her into his own home. See the tenderness of our Lord Jesus. Can you see it? He is not indifferent or uncaring. No, in his hour of deepest need, he is seeing the needs of others. There's something for us to learn from our Savior. And there's the piercing reality that settles on them too. Jesus isn't coming down. He's not walking off the cross. There's no miracle left for him here. There will be no miraculous saving of Jesus, only the miraculous saving of sinners through Jesus. That's what's going to happen. But that means he dies. This is when John recounts the moment of our Savior's death. And again, John is calling us in the midst of the humiliation and the, the gripping horror of this to see Jesus as triumphant and sovereignly ruling from his cross. He cries out in thirst and fulfills Psalm 69, 21, which says, They gave me poison for food, and for my thirst they gave me sour wine to drink. Jesus isn't acting here. He's no doubt dehydrated and very thirsty, but he's fully aware that he is fulfilling the path of the suffering Messiah. And he takes a drink and lays down his life to save us from our sins. John writes, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. What sorrow and triumph fill that moment. The innocent lamb is slain. But it is the lamb who is giving up his spirit, having finished and completed the work the father had sent him to do. 
I mean, remember how Jesus told us that he was sent over and over? He said this to us so many times in this gospel. Chapter 4, verse 34, Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Chapter 5, verse 24, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. Chapter 6, verse 38, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Chapter 7, verse 21, I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. Chapter 8, verse 42, Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. John 16, verse 5, But now I am going to him who sent me. The Lord Jesus was sent to accomplish the Father's will, and he declares in majesty from the cross, It is finished! And John reminds us that Jesus' life is not taken from him. Do you see this, friends? No, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. I mean, we can hear, can you hear the echoes of the Good Shepherd's sermon in John chapter 10? For this reason, the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me. But I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. And I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. The Father sent him to do the work. And Jesus cries from the cross, it's finished. Beloved church, Jesus came to do what the Father had sent him to do. The will of the Father was to crush his Son in our place. Jesus dying freely to pay the penalty for our sin. Jesus, whose throne was heaven, reigned from a cross as he accomplished the work of his Father. Can you see your need of him today? Can you see that it is you who owe this debt that you could never pay, and Jesus offers himself in your place if you would believe and trust in him? You can trust in him today if you haven't trusted in Christ. We would plead with you too. But if you have trusted in Christ, can you again see your need of him? Yes, you are in Christ. You are a new creation. But can you see that you still desperately need this loving, crucified Savior? His death happened at this moment in time, and yet his salvation, secured in his death on the cross, infuses our every day, even our every breath, with meaning. Because we were once dead in our sin. But God, through Jesus' death, made us alive so that we can carry this message of a crucified and risen Savior to a world that so desperately needs Him and doesn't even know they need Him. The mission we have is not to accomplish the salvation of sinners. Jesus did that. It is finished. Our mission is to tell the world of this glorious Savior who's finished everything that we could need for salvation. That's a privilege and a joy we get. Jesus died to give life. That's the message of the cross. The darkness was overcome by the death of the Son of God. All of this demonstrating the unfathomable depths of the love of God for guilty sinners. How wonderful is this salvation, brothers and sisters? 
And the one who upheld the universe by the word of his power speaks his word of victory as he dies. Yet, there were even more scriptures to be fulfilled. I mean, John brings us back. Jesus dies, and John doesn't stop there. He says, there's more. There's more for you to see here. Don't turn away. John brings us back to the Passover. The day after Jesus died was the Sabbath day, so all work would be forbidden. And as John notes, this, this Sabbath had special significance because it was the Passover Sabbath. Again, again, can you see this? The death of Jesus, the Lamb of God, during Passover is rich with significance for our faith. As he fulfills the Passover ceremony in his death on the cross. John is signaling over and over again, fulfilled, 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 accomplished, done. Jesus is fulfilling the promises of God. John is building the case for our faith in Jesus, and he, he continues doing it here through the Jews, seeking that the Romans would break the legs of the criminals. Why would they want that? If you remember earlier, you would have to push against the nail to breathe. So with broken legs, the crucified person could no longer push themselves up to get breath. So this breaking of the legs would mean they would suffocate faster. The Jewish leaders asked that Pilate break the legs of Jesus and the two men that were crucified with him. John says that they were doing this according to a Jewish customs. There's nothing to be done on the Passover. Now, we shouldn't read sorrow or repentance into their actions. John doesn't give us that option. Rather, they, by this, they kept up their appearances, just like when they wouldn't enter the governor's quarters to be defiled while they condemned an innocent man. And it is possible that they wanted Jesus' legs broken to heighten his humiliation. This way, if Jesus was mutilated even further in front of people, they could make a stronger case against anyone actually believing in him. But the schemes of man, as we have seen time and time in the Gospel of John, only serve to accomplish the glorious sovereign plans of our God. The soldiers beginning their gruesome work come only to find Jesus already dead. And instead of breaking his legs, they decide to stab him with a spear. And here John actually does give us some really serious, vivid detail. It says that when the soldier did this, that he stabbed Jesus with the spear and pierced him, and water and blood came out of Jesus. Now some read far too much symbolism into this moment. When in reality, what John is doing is again proving his credibility as an eyewitness to what happened saying he was really dead. And many physicians have verified this testimony that shows that the spear pierces Jesus' heart as evidenced by the blood and water flowing from his side. Why does he do this? Why is John telling us vivid details now? Because he wants you to know, beyond the shadow of a doubt, Jesus really died. This is not first a theological claim. It is first evidence that he saw Jesus die, that Jesus was not pretending or acting or just passed out. He's dead. The darling of heaven 
hanging limply dead on a cross. And again, our brother John shows us his death was exactly how it had been foretold from Exodus and Zechariah. He is just pouring, you can almost see it as he's writing this account, pouring proof from the Bible, from the scriptures, that Jesus is who he claimed to be. Jesus did fulfill exactly what he promised he was fulfilling. And then we see the Lord taken down and buried in relative secrecy as a disciple named Joseph of Arimathea comes to care for the body of Jesus. And he has a companion with him whom we met about a year ago. A man named Nicodemus. Whom John reminds us to Jesus that he had, came, he had come to Jesus before at night. And John goes through pains to say he's not a disciple in this text. Not saying he's not one, but does, not saying he is a disciple. Joseph's a disciple, secretly. Nicodemus is someone who's a companion. We don't know what this meant for Nicodemus. But one scholar does give us some note of hope with him, saying, John may be telling us that this action, by this action, Nicodemus shows he's stepping out of darkness and entering into the light. But whether this means something for Nicodemus or not, John again gives us the trained eye of a witness, giving us small but significant details about the burial of Jesus. He again trains our eyes to see Jesus, who is dead, being taken down off the cross and buried. Now, friends, why does John want you and I to understand so desperately that Jesus truly died? Hear me. Because if Jesus did not truly die, there is no sacrifice for your sin. There is no hope for your eternal life. There is no payment of the debt we owe for our sin if Jesus didn't really die. If Jesus didn't really die, then we're all damned and without hope for all eternity. But John says to you and to me, our Lord came and he died. And that through faith in him, we have eternal life. The sacrifice has been made. The debt has been paid. Our hope of eternal life is secure through the death of our Savior, King Jesus. The death of Jesus crucified in our place, became the centerpiece of one of the earliest confessions of faith for Christians. We call it the Apostles' Creed, which if you're a Christian, I invite you to confess out loud with me again now. I believe in God the Father, Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only begotten Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost. I believe a holy Catholic church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Yes, O oh church. Jesus died on the cross for our sin, but he did not stay dead. Which we will see next week, but today we see him crucified, dead, and buried. 
in the place of guilty sinners for their eternal redemption. Church, we remember our Lord in his horrific death to remember that our sin brings the penalty of death. And we also remember that Jesus paid that penalty for us as we trust in him by faith. And we actually confess this reality every Lord's Day as we, together, as a body of believers, remember our Lord Jesus, whose body was broken and blood was shed, to satisfy the wrath of God when we partake of the Lord's Supper together. He has not left us without a symbol or a celebration to participate in together. Yes, we celebrate the death of Jesus. Because through his death, we are freed from our own death. And through his resurrection, we have the guaranteed hope of eternal life. 